Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 3 The Antiquity of Civilization Part 5 One new theory maintains that our race did not come to its present home from the East, but from the South. Some say the Europeans did not come from Asia, but from Africa. Some have even had the wild idea that the Europeans came from Europe, or rather, that they never left it. Then there is a certain amount of evidence of a more or less prehistoric pressure from the North, such as that which seems to have brought the Greeks to inherit the Cretan culture, and so often brought the Gauls over the hills into the fields in Italy. But I merely mention this example of European ethnology to point out that the learned have pretty well boxed the compass by this time, and that I, who am not one of the learned, cannot pretend for a moment to decide where such doctors disagree. But I can use my own common sense, and I sometimes fancy that theirs is a little rusty from want of use. The first act of common sense is to recognize the difference between a cloud and a mountain. And I will affirm that nobody knows any of these things in the sense that we all know of the existence of the pyramids of Egypt. The truth, it may be repeated, is that what we really see, as distinct from what we may reasonably guess, in this earliest phase of history, is darkness covering the earth, and great darkness the peoples, with a light or two gleaming here and there on chance patches of humanity and that two of these flames do burn upon two of these tall primeval towns, upon the high terraces of Babylon and the huge pyramids of the Nile. There are indeed other ancient lights, or lights that may be conjectured to be very ancient, in very remote parts of that vast wilderness of night. Far away to the east there is a high civilization of vast antiquity in China. There are the remains of civilizations in Mexico and South America and other places, some of them apparently so high in civilization as to have reached the most refined forms of devil worship. But the difference lies in the element of tradition. The tradition of these lost cultures has been broken off, and though the tradition of China still lives, it is doubtful whether we know anything about it. Moreover, a man trying to measure the Chinese antiquity has to use Chinese traditions of measurement, and he has a strange sensation of having passed into another world under other laws of time and space. Time is telescoped outwards, and centuries assume the slow and stiff movement of eons. The white man, trying to see it as the yellow man sees, feels as if his head were turning round and wonders wildly whether it is growing a pigtail. Anyhow, he cannot take, in a scientific sense, that queer perspective that leads up to the primeval pagoda of the first of the sons of heaven. He is the real Antipodes, the only true alternative world to Christendom, and he is, after a fashion, walking upside down. I have spoken of the medieval mapmaker and his dragon, but what medieval traveler, however much interested in monsters, would expect to find a country where a dragon is a benevolent and amiable being? Of the more serious side of Chinese tradition, something will be said in another connection. But I am only talking of tradition and the test of antiquity. 
And I only mention China as an antiquity that is not for us reached by a bridge of tradition, and Babylon and Egypt as antiquities that are. Herodotus is a human being, in a sense in which a Chinaman in a billycock hat, sitting opposite to us in a London tea shop, is hardly human. We feel as if we knew what David and Isaiah felt like, in a way in which we never were quite certain what Li Hong Chang felt like. The very sins that snatched away Helen or Bathsheba have passed into a proverb of private human weakness, of pathos, and even of pardon. The very virtues of the Chinamen have about them something terrifying. This is the difference made by the destruction or preservation of a continuous historical inheritance, as from ancient Egypt to modern Europe. But when we ask what was that world that we inherit, and why those particular people and places seem to belong to it, we are led to the central fact of civilized history. That center was the Mediterranean, which was not so much a piece of water as a world. But it was a world with something of the character of such a water, for it became more and more a place of unification in which the streams of strange and very diverse cultures met. The Nile and the Tiber alike flow into the Mediterranean. So did the Egyptian and the Etrurian alike contribute to a Mediterranean civilization. The glamour of the Great Sea spread indeed very far inland, and the unity was felt among the Arabs alone in the deserts, and the Gauls beyond the northern hills. But the gradual building up of a common culture running round all the coasts of this inner sea is the main business of antiquity. As will be seen, it was sometimes a bad business as well as a good business. In that orbis terrarum, or circle of lands, there were the extremes of evil and of piety. There were contrasted races and still more contrasted religions. It was the scene of an endless struggle between Asia and Europe from the flight of the Persian ships at Salamis to the flight of the Turkish ships at Lepanto. It was the scene, as will be more especially suggested later, of a supreme spiritual struggle between the two types of paganism, confronting each other in the Latin and the Phoenician cities, in the Roman Forum and the Punic Mart. It was the world of war and peace, the world of good and evil, the world of all that matters most, with all respect to the Aztecs and the Mongols of the Far East. They did not matter as the Mediterranean tradition mattered, and still matters. Between it and the Far East there were, of course, interesting cults and conquests of various kinds, more or less in touch with it, and in proportion as they were so intelligible also to us. The Persians came riding in to make an end of Babylon, and we are told in a Greek story how these barbarians learned to draw the bow and tell the truth. Alexander the Great Greek marched with his Macedonians into the sunrise, and brought back strange birds colored like the sunrise clouds, and strange flowers and jewels from the gardens and treasuries of nameless kings. Islam went eastward into that world, and made it partly imaginable to us, precisely because Islam itself was born in that circle of lands that fringed our own ancient and ancestral sea. In the Middle Ages, the empire of the Mughals increased its majesty without losing its mystery. The Tartars conquered China, and the Chinese apparently took very little notice of them. 
All these things are interesting in themselves. But it is impossible to shift the center of gravity to the inland spaces of Asia from the inland sea of Europe. When all is said, if there were nothing in the world but what was said and done and written and built in the lands lying round the Mediterranean, it would still be in all the most vital and valuable things the world in which we live. When that southern culture spread to the northwest, it produced many very wonderful things, of which doubtless we ourselves are the most wonderful. When it spread thence to colonies and new countries, it was still the same culture so long as it was culture at all. But round that little sea like a lake were the things themselves, apart from all extensions and echoes and commentaries on the things, the Republic and the Church, the Bible and the heroic epics, Islam and Israel, and the memories of the lost empires, Aristotle and the measure of all things. It is because the first light upon this world is really light, the daylight in which we are still walking today, and not merely the doubtful visitation of strange stars, that I have begun here with noting where that light first falls on the towered cities of the eastern Mediterranean. But though Babylon and Egypt have thus a sort of first claim in the very fact of being familiar and traditional, fascinating riddles to us, but also fascinating riddles to our fathers, we must not imagine that they were the only old civilizations on the southern sea, or that all the civilization was merely Sumerian, or Semitic, or Coptic, still less merely Asiatic, or African. Real research is more and more exalting the ancient civilization of Europe, and especially of what we may still vaguely call the Greeks. It must be understood in the sense that there were Greeks before the Greeks, as in so many of their mythologies there were gods before the gods. The island of Crete was the center of the civilization now called Minoan, after the Minos who lingered in ancient legend and whose labyrinth was actually discovered by modern archaeology. This elaborate European society, with its harbors and its drainage and its domestic machinery, seems to have gone down before some invasion of its northern neighbors, who made or inherited the Hellas we know in history. But that earlier period did not pass till it had given to the world gifts so great that the world has ever since been striving in vain to repay them, if only by plagiarism. Somewhere along the Ionian coast opposite Crete and the islands was a town of some sort, probably of the sort that we should call a village or hamlet with a wall. It was called Ilion, but it came to be called Troy, and the name will never perish from the earth. A poet who may have been a beggar, and a balladmonger who may have been unable to read and write, and was described by tradition as blind, composed a poem about the Greeks going to war with this town to recover the most beautiful woman in the world. That the most beautiful woman in the world lived in that one little town sounds like a legend. That the most beautiful poem in the world was written by somebody who knew of nothing larger than such little towns is a historical fact. It is said that the poem came at the end of the period, that the primitive culture brought it forth in its decay, in which case one would like to have seen that culture in its prime. But anyhow, it is true that this, which is our first poem, might very well be our last poem too. 
It might well be the last word as well as the first word spoken by man about his mortal lot, as seen by merely mortal vision. If the world becomes pagan and perishes, the last man left alive would do well to quote the Iliad and die. But in this one great human revelation of antiquity, there is another element of great historical importance, which has hardly, I think, been given its proper place in history. The poet has so conceived the poem that his sympathies apparently, and those of his reader certainly, are on the side of the vanquished rather than of the victor. And this is a sentiment which increases in the poetical tradition, even as the poetical origin itself recedes. Achilles had some status as a sort of demigod in pagan times, but he disappears altogether in later times. But Hector grows greater as the ages pass, and it is his name that is the name of a knight of the round table, and his sword that legend puts into the hand of Roland, laying about him with the weapon of the defeated Hector in the last ruin and splendor of his own defeat. The name anticipates all the defeats through which our race and religion were to pass. That survival of a hundred defeats, that is its triumph. The tale of the end of Troy shall have no ending, for it is lifted up forever into living echoes, immortal as our hopelessness and our hope. Troy standing was a small thing that may have stood nameless for ages. But Troy falling has been caught up in a flame and suspended in an immortal instant of annihilation. And because it was destroyed with fire, the fire shall never be destroyed. And as with the city, so with the hero. Traced in archaic lines in that primeval twilight is found the first figure of the night. There is a prophetic coincidence in his title. We have spoken of the word chivalry and how it seems to mingle the horseman with the horse. It is almost anticipated ages before in the thunder of the Homeric hexameter, and that long leaping word with which the Iliad ends. It is that very unity for which we can find no name but the holy centaur of chivalry. But there are other reasons for giving in this glimpse of antiquity the flame upon the sacred town. The sanctity of such towns ran like a fire round the coasts and islands of the northern Mediterranean, the high-fenced hamlet for which heroes died. From the smallness of the city came the greatness of the citizen. Hellas, with her hundred statues, produced nothing statelier than that walking statue, the ideal of the self-commanding man. Hellas, of the hundred statues, was one legend and literature, and all that labyrinth of little walled nations resounded with the lament of Troy. A later legend, an afterthought but not an accident, said that stragglers from Troy founded a republic on the Italian shore. It was true in spirit that republican virtue had such a root, a mystery of honor that was not born of Babylon or the Egyptian pride. There shone like the shield of Hector, defying Asia and Africa, till the light of a new day was loosened, with the rushing of the eagles and the coming of the name, the name that came like a thunderclap when the world woke to Rome.
Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>